0: An honor to God as the head of my life, and uh, just what an honor and a joy to be with you this morning. Can I ask you to bow your head forward a word of prayer with me, please? Eternal God, we worship you this morning and we praise you, oh God. Lord, we lift up your name. Father, you said where two or three were gathered in your name, there you'd be in the midst. And God, I thank you for this sacred opportunity, this sacred space. And this time that folk have given out of their lives to hear and interact with your word. Now, God, I pray that people will not hear me, but they would hear you today. And that we will leave here changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I stand here before you today, so many memories come to my mind of this church. I think you've had me to come and preach before you before, and, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. But years ago we had a program for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday here. I don't know, was anybody here on that day? And that day we celebrated uh, his life and we also called for a day of peace in Oakland. And we had a lot of really powerful speakers who came forward to talk about the issues that are confronting Oakland and it was a really powerful day. And more than that, I remember a time that somebody called me and they said, you know, uh, we got a big problem. These people work with human trafficking victims and they said a young woman was murdered here in Oakland. Her issue was so powerful that we can't have a public funeral for her, lest the people who took her life come visit the funeral. And so we need some pastor who will be courageous enough to let us have a space where we could silently mourn the passing of this young woman just out of her teens who was killed by her pimp here in Oakland. And I remember coming to Pastor Albert and I said, would you open the doors of Regeneration Church so that we could have the sacred going away celebration for this young woman who lost her life. And so when I stand before you today, I think of the two words, social justice, and how the two of those words interact with the Gospels. Today I'm going to be sharing from the theme, the road to eternal life. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Being that I'm Baptist, I'm going to ask you in the Baptist tradition, when you get it, I'm going to ask you to say, amen. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. Verse 25 reads as thus. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As the passage of scripture begins, a religious scholar hits Jesus with one of the greatest enigmas of all time. He asked Jesus to pull back the cloak on one of the greatest mysteries in the universe. It is a question that human beings have asked since the dawn of time. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was no idle question, but it was a question that has been debated by the greatest scholars and theologians of all time. And certainly, it was a question that was debated by folk back in that day. The concept of eternal life was an evolving one in the Jewish theological realm, following the Babylonian exile. In the world of the Old Testament, it was commonly thought that after death, both the good and the evil went down to a place of darkness called Shoal or the grave, where people became weakened shadows of their former selves. In Isaiah 38, 18, the prophet says, For the grave cannot hope for your faithfulness. Psalm 115, 17 says, The dead cannot sing praises to the Lord, for they have gone down into the silence of the grave. Then Ecclesiastes nine fifteen, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Jesus himself speaks with so much authority and clarity about eternal life in his lectures, perhaps because the backdrop of the evolution of the concept of life after death was just developing in his world. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question hasn't gone away. In fact, there's at least one individual in this room who has asked themselves, what will happen to me after I die? Rakim Allah is considered by many to be one of the greatest hip-hop artists of all times. He ponders this thought in an unreleased track recorded with producer Dr. Dre called After You Die. Consider the words. Do you ever sit back and get a little too high? Start thinking what happens to you when you die? Does your soul rest where the coffin is? Or is death just a metamorphosis? Does life go on in the mental form? If we live a good life, will we get reborn? Is it a heaven or are we trapped in hell? Where do we go from here? Nobody ever came back to tell. Are we reincarnated or do we perish in time? Could we shine when darkness inherits the mind and your eyes were closed for good throughout the galaxy now? Is the subconscious dream or my reality now? Listen to my brain with no physical frame. Could we return to the hood on a spiritual plane? Ask yourself, if I pass tonight, am I prepared for what's after life? Jesus tells the religious teacher that he must not only love God, but love his neighbor. Look closely. Jesus connects the man's care for his neighbor with eternal life. I didn't say it, it's right there in the text. The religious leader counters by asking, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, who calls himself in another passage, the truth and the life, kicks the conversation into high gear. He takes it to a place where the scribe never would have thought it would go. Jesus breaks it down with a story that is so simple that a child can understand it. If we're going to update the story a little bit, it might take place like this. A certain man was walking down International Boulevard at 85th Avenue around midnight when a blue 98 Oldsmobile pulls over to the curb and Jackers hop out on him. They tear his pockets and despite his cries, they pistol whip him and leave him unconscious on the sidewalk. This is pretty much what happened and except in Jesus' story, it all takes place on a desolate road between Jericho and Jerusalem. As the story progresses, a priest walks by. Now Jesus is really keeping it real here. Back in that time, the priest was nearly bowed down to in society because of his supposed proximity to God. The priest had memorized many scriptures and regularly led the feasts of worship, and yet he walks down the road, sees the mugging victim, and crosses the street and continues on his way leaving the mugging victim in a crumpled heap with a bloody head wound and flies buzzing around his head. Next to Levite, an assistant to the priest happens along the road. He looks down at the poor unconscious man and he crosses the road and continues on to the temple where he's going to worship God. And before we get to the end of the story, Jesus is already dropping some bombs on us. Number one, You can read the whole Bible and memorize 50% of it. You can spend 50% of your awakening hours in church and yet still not be right with God. For Jesus says it's a two-part equation. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, religion is not just what happens inside of the house of worship. It has to do with your compassion to your fellow humanity outside of the building, especially poor people. The disenfranchised, the left out, the least, and the lost. Notice, the whole story revolves around an unconscious man who has no way to protect himself and no voice. Religion is not about how Long you can pray, but what can you do for the complete stranger who has no one to help him in the most stressful, distressful, imaginable situations? Author Taylor Branch wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning account of the civil rights movement. It's called Parting the Waters. That book changed my life. The first volume in the trilogy tells a story about how Dr. King came from being a small preacher in a small church in Montgomery, Alabama, and how he begins his development to become one of the greatest voices for freedom ever. A mass meeting was being held at the church. The thunder of hand claps accompanied the gospel anthems. Anticipation was high, but Dr. King was late. Where was he? In the back of the church auditorium, there he was, having a conversation with the janitor's wife about her rheumatism. Yeah, Dr. King, the doctor gave her this rubbing cream, but it doesn't seem to be working. Oh, no, King remarks. Hundreds of people are crowded into the auditorium to hear Dr. King, and he's in the back discussing home remedies with the maintenance man. What made Dr. King so great was not his gift of oratory, but the fact that he really saw people. He saw people who were invisible to the high and mighty, the politically corrected, even the religious leaders. In one of his greatest speeches ever, called the Drum Major Instinct, King says, every now and then, I guess we all realistically think about the day when we will be victimized with what is life's common denominator. That something is called death. We all think about it from now and then, and and I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral, and I don't think about it in a morbid sense. And every now and then I ask myself what it is I would want said, and I leave the word to you this morning. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then, I wonder what I want him to say. Tell him not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell him not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell him not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like somebody to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to live my life where I could clothe the naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Jesus' story would have been devoid of hope if it were not for the third person in the story. But the story continues in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. This would have raised the eyebrows of the religious scholar who asked the original question. The Samaritans were thoroughly scorned and roundly hated by Jewish folks even though they shared the same lineage through Abraham. The religious scholar was more than likely a racist who would have seen any Samaritan as beneath himself. He was somebody that would be assumed to have no connection to God at all. And yet in the story, the Samaritan takes pity on the victim. He bandages his wounds. He takes the man to an end because they didn't have hospitals back in that day. And he arranges for care out of his own pocket. Let me make three quick points and I'll be finished. Number one is C. Number one is C. Each of the men on the Jericho Road was going about his way like it was any other day when they saw the mugging victim laying out there on the side of the road. And yet I say to you this morning, friends here at Regeneration Church, that there are two kinds of sight. The priest and the Levite saw because sight is a biological function, which involves the optical nerves. The Samaritan saw with eyes of mercy. He saw with the eyes of God. He instantly cared about somebody that he did not know and somebody who probably would never be in a position to do anything in return for him. The Bible says he had pity. When you look through the Gospels, you see that when Jesus would pass by someone in distress and the passage would say he saw him, That was a powerful phrase. When Jesus saw, his heart was moved with empathy and compassion. When Jesus saw, he healed people. He restored people. He resurrected people. When Jesus saw, he gave of himself. Friends, do you see this morning? Because we live in a world full of sightless people. We can't see any farther than our own bills and the zeros in our bank statements. But today, God desires to stretch you and I, to improve our vision, and to help us to see helpless people lying right out in front of you. Who did you pass this morning on your way to the temple? Here in the Bay Area, housing prices are through the roof. Once this neighborhood was called Funk Town. And it was a working-class neighborhood. It was a place where poor people lived and thrived and had barbecues and worked every day. They can't afford to live in Funktown anymore. Town does not look like it did when I first came here because people are being displaced here in Oakland. They're languishing now. People who once lived in the blocks surrounding this building, you say, Well, Rev, where did they go? Some of them were pushed out to Antioch. Some were pushed out to Pittsburgh. Some are languishing in tent cities here in Oakland. I once heard the story of a woman who had to compromise herself sexually with the new landlord so that she could keep a roof over her children's head when gentrification rose to rent on her two bedroom flat in West Oakland. Do you see? Did you see those little kids playing on the sidewalk just a few blocks away from here? Their daddy is in prison ensnared by the prison industrial complex. The prison industrial complex which feeds itself on the black and brown flesh of my brothers. Each morning, great buses roar through the streets of Oakland, Berkeley, and San Francisco on the way to Silicon Valley. They are filled with young people set for the future. While young people of color go to schools where they will never be exposed to coding or have any access to a computer at all. What is their future? Can you see? Point number two. Do something. Do something. You know, last week I was with Matt Beardsley, a friend of mine. I was making a little video clip for a book trailer because I have a new book coming out called Street Cred, A Hood Minister's Guide to Urban Ministry. little commercial plug there. And we were there, and uh, he was taking pictures of me in a hot spot in Oakland, and all of a sudden, violence broke out. And when something happens, when you see two people going at it, or somebody pulls out a weapon, your first thought is to get out of the way. And that's what the Levite and the priest did. They thought to themselves, gee, if something happened to this man, it could happen to me. First, I'm asking you this morning to do as Jesus did. To do as the Good Samaritan, I hate to use the word the Good Samaritan because really that's a racist term. When you say the Good Samaritan, it implies that the rest of the folk are not good who come under his ethnic background. So we don't say the Good Samaritan, we say the Samaritan. Anyway, I submit to you that when we see something that's ugly, we want to cross the road. Some will say, I have my own problems to think about. But I submit to you that if God is the great architect and engineer of the universe, It is quite possible that he put all three of those men in a place where they could help someone who could not help himself. God has placed you down in a time, in a place in human history where there is so much hatred and division in the United States of America. If you doubt what I'm saying, just turn on CNN this morning when you go home. If you doubt what I'm saying, just go to the internet and look up Meet the Press or Face the Nation. We're going through a time where there's so much hatred and division. In the Bay Area, we have what sociologists call food deserts, where you can buy candy bars and cheap liquor, but you can't buy fruit or vegetables in some neighborhoods. We need somebody who has the eyes of God to figure out a way to do something about that. I have a friend named Vanessa Russell. Vanessa works for the computer industry, but on the weekend, she teaches dance to kids in Oakland. One day, one of her students didn't show up for dance class, and she wondered what happened to the young girl. As it turned out, the girl was captured by a local pimp, and she was trafficked out here on the streets of Oakland. Vanessa is a woman who doesn't have a lot of street background. She's a prim, proper type person. But when she saw the evil that was right in front of her, she was moved in her heart and saying, I've got to do something. She started an organization called Love Never Fails. She did something. Friends, we live in a world that's calling on you to do something. And God is calling on you to do something to help your neighbor. Number three, and my last point is this. It's going to cost you. It costs the Samaritan time. It took him time to to pour out the wine, which they used for medicine, into the man's wounds, to wrap him up in bandages, to put him on his donkey and take him to the inn. And to leave him in good care cost money that he had to pull out of his own pocket. He did all this in secret. There would never be a banquet for the Samaritan man. There was never going to be a thank you card. He did all this because the trueness of his religion was not saying some words behind the preacher, but it was how he would act out in public, especially to somebody who was disenfranchised. That's real religion. Somebody say real religion. Real religion. Boy, y'all are so quiet this morning. <laughs> You're going to be Baptist for 10 minutes with me. <laughs> somebody say Real religion. Real There you go, there you go. Real religion, good religion is never cheap. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. You may never hear thank you. The only thanks you may get will be on that one day, but it's going to be the most important thank you. Can you imagine God Almighty looking down at you, his face glowing with a smile on it, saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's easy to say That salvation is simply that 60-second litany of asking Jesus Christ into your heart. But if you read the scriptures, it's so much more than that. For Jesus, it was so much more complicated. In this world of globalization and serious challenges, we've got to take this thing so seriously. Back then, his neighbor was somebody that was walking down the road. But today with globalization, today with the television and the internet, your neighbor is in Syria now. Your neighbor is in Ferguson. Your neighbor is in Chicago where they've had more homicides this month than they have in 20 years. There's so many people suffering among you that really, really need help. Some of you are listening to me and some are only halfway hearing me. But go back and read the scripture. Jesus said that salvation rested in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself has eternal ramifications. Some of us are going to have to leave our comfort zone. Some of us are going to have to depart with some wealth. If you take God seriously, it will change your whole eternity, your life. God bless you. Thank you.